You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good? I was delighted to wake up this morning. I thought I'd wake up in sunny Santa Monica this morning, but I woke up in just lovely Santa Monica. I'll take it. It's good to be here. I'm here with my friend Jaden. I live in Vancouver with my wife, Rachel, our three kids, Hudson, Mary, and Millie, and all the parents here know that school is almost out, and so that is the main theme of my universe these days. How many more days till school's done? How many more days till school's done? How many more days till school's done? So that's on my mind, and uh, I, with some friends, I pastor a church in Vancouver, and we started it in the middle of the pandemic. September 2020, we launched, and we had hoped to launch in person, but there was restrictions, so we launched online, and by God's grace, we're still alive today, and uh, we were deeply inspired by Vintage Church and feel a deep kinship and affinity with this church, with the leadership team, with Gare. And so you guys have friends in Vancouver. You have brothers and sisters in the faith, obviously all over the world. Uh, But for me to be here on behalf of our church family, I'm sending greetings and gratitude for who you are and the example you set for us. Throughout the next number of weeks, you are in a series on the book of Philippians. And uh, in our church, we go through a couple books of the Bible, maybe similar to you, and we move pretty slow. It takes us about, you know, each year we can get through two books, and there's 66 books in the Bible. So I often say to our church family, if you stay with us for 33 years, (laughs) you're going to get a real handle of this thing. And I really wish, as followers of Jesus, we gave ourselves permission to journey at that pace. Because the Bible's a good book, but it's not a simple book. Do you know what I mean? Like it takes time to wade into it. Uh, In the language of the Psalms, when it talks about like meditating on God's word, it's like the language or the imagery is like of like a cow that kind of just mauls on grass, like just slowly chewing, slowly chewing. It's not meant to be rushed through. It's meant to be reflected on like wrestled with, engaged with. And so we have an opportunity before us this summer to chew on 1,600 or so words in the original language that we call today the book of Philippians. So here's my job. My job is to set the stage, to provide some introduction to the book of Philippians, to give some context, some notes, some framing, and to set you up if you would like to go home today and read it with being equipped to understand, okay, what's going on here? What's the context? Who's the writer? Who's receiving this? That would give lens and insight as you read it yourself. And so the first thing I want to mention, which may be to some degree is self-evident, but the book of Philippians is a letter. It might be more accurate to call it the letter to the church in Philippians or the letter of Philippians. And the book of Philippians, or a letter to the church in Philippi, was written in the first century by a man called Paul. And Paul is a pastor. He's a church planter and pastor in the first century. And as he pens this letter, he is in prison in Rome. And he's far away from the church that he loves in Philippi. And from a pastoral heart and conviction, he pens this letter to a church that's only about 10 years old in Philippi. Now, when I was dating Rachel, my wife, we exchanged letters, not because there wasn't other technology at our disposal, but we thought it was kind of cute and ironic, so we did that. 
And if you were to grab hold of one of those letters, let's say, you know, I don't know how you would stumble across it. Maybe we put it in a bottle in the ocean and it made its way down the West Coast and you found it on your beach. If you took out that love letter, you would intuitively enter into the story. Does that make sense? Like when you read a letter, you know that there is a recipient, that it's part of a broader correspondence, and that correspondence takes you into a story. In the case of maybe one of our letters, it would be a budding love story between two teenagers. But when we enter the story that the letter to the church in Philippi brings us into, it's the story of a young church in the first century. Like this is a window in to a moment and place in history that transformed all of human history around the world. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think there's an invitation for us to interact with a reliable first century document between a pastor Paul and a brand new church in the Roman colony of Philippi. And at this point in the movement of Christianity, it's young. Like this is a startup. And it's, there's great persecution in the Roman Empire against people who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. And so it's almost like, some historians wrestle with the question, how did the early church survive the first, second, and third century with such great persecution? So you got the force of Rome and the religious establishments trying to snuff out the Christian movement. And in the city like Philippi, there is a small gathering of Christians that's beginning to grow. And it's to that small gathering of Christians in the first century, in the midst of persecution, while Paul's in prison, he pens this letter, and here we we are today getting to interact with it for the summer. That's pretty cool. Anyone with me? You just say it anyways, you know, you don't have to be with me. Just, I'm out of town. Just give me something here. No, you guys are amazing. You're amazing. Just be yourself. No pressure. I think it's important that we keep in mind that the text we're, le- we're reading this summer together is or anytime we read the Bible, but this particular text is a letter because it helps us, it reminds us that the message and these words are part of like a real story with real people in a real place. And I don't know if you felt this, but sometimes for me there's a temptation whenever we approach scripture or religious texts to kind of relegate them to the realm of abstract ideas almost like a sentimentality or just philosophical axioms, that while they exist up here, they don't intersect our day-to-day lives. I think on some level it happens kind of naturally, even as we enter into here today, we sing the songs, we hear the words, and they can give us a feeling or we can interact with them as abstract ideas. But because this is a letter, we're not really afforded that. Because for the first recipients of this letter, it wasn't abstract axioms, it was real life. Like the things that Paul is taught from a prison cell to a church in persecution, like it's real people facing real issues, trying to work out what does it actually look like for the reality of who Jesus is to intersect their day-to-day lives. And so because it really speaks to the first church in Philippi, it really also can speak to us today here in Los Angeles. Like it's meant to interact with the fleshiness of day-to-day life. And like a letter like this is covered with flesh and blood. Like it's covered, if you read it, with the dustiness of real life. It's not once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's real life. And it's meant to impact our real lives today. So Paul writes this letter 
to his friends that he loves dearly in Philippi. And I just want to explain a little bit how that letter would have gotten from Paul in Rome to the church in Philippi. And so we get this from the letter. He, there's a, a gentleman called Epaphroditus. So the church in Philippi knew that Paul, their pastor, was in jail in Rome. He'd been there for some time. And at that time, if you were in prison, you would be dependent on your friends and family to provide provisions for you to survive in prison. Does that make sense? So the church in Philippi, they love their pastor Paul. They know he's in prison. They've been supporting his missionary journeys. And so they send a care package. And a gentleman called Epaphroditus agrees to take it. And it's quite a treacherous journey. It was multiple weeks on foot to get from Philippi to Rome. And so Epaphroditus comes, visits Paul, stays there for some months. The hope was that Paul could have come back with Epaphroditus to Philippi, but he was not able. So Paul pens a letter, gives it to Epaphroditus, and then Epaphroditus comes back to the church and would stand up amongst the community and then read that letter. And so I got to thinking, what if Pastor Gare was in prison in like Vegas or something, you know? (laughs) And, or like if we were to actually map out the distance from Rome to Philippi, it'd be more like Portland or Albuquerque or something like that. That's kind of the distance. And then someone from the pastoral team like Greg or Sammy or Johnny or whoever it might be goes, you guys all go, we got to send Gare a care package, right? You would do that. You're the kind of good, right? You could do that. You'd care for him. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And so then somebody, you know, goes with the care package and they, they, you know, go all the way there on foot and then spend time with Gare. And then Gare just is delighted to hear about you. He loves you. He's your pastor. And his heart for you is growing so much that he pens this letter and he gives it to Greg. And then Greg comes back and he stands before all of you and he reads the letter. Like that's what we're supposed to imagine when we think about the letter to the church in Philippi, the heart of a pastor. But if you indulge me a moment, I did take a stab at writing a letter from Gare in prison <laughs> to you guys. And uh, I'm going to read it. Is that right? Here we go. To the Christians gathered in Los Angeles, my dear church family at Vintage, as I write, I'm praying that God's love and peace and power would be experienced among you. I long to be with you. I love you and care for you. I've gotten reports from Greg about your passion for Jesus, your love for one another, about your generosity, and it gives me so much joy to hear that. I appreciate your great concern for me, but I want you to know that God is using this time in prison to bring about his purposes. We've started three alphas in prison. One. (laughs) If anyone is starting three alphas in prison on his side, it's Gare Jones. One in each ward. What some meant to use to shut down the spread of the gospel has only served to advance the cause of Jesus. More than anything, I long for you to truly know the good news personally. To not just know it intellectually, but to experience the love and freedom that's made available in Jesus through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I just kind of tried to take a stab at the pastoral heart that someone like Gare might send to you 
So I imagine him saying, I wanna urge you brothers and sisters, be unified in Christ. Do not let the patterns of this world, the way of division and pride make its way into the community of faith. Just as the Father and the Son are unified, may you be unified. In a city fixated on external beauty, may we be a people of substance and character. In a culture obsessed with fame, may we seek to make the name of Jesus famous, to desire that we may become less, that he may become more. Stay true to God's word. Stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. There are many so-called teachers and influencers who fill your feeds with ideas that tickle our ears but are like poison in our lives. Don't give in to the winds of culture, the cheap and changing ideas and arguments of the day. They come and they go. Instead, ground yourself in the time-tested and unchanging truth of Jesus Christ. Each of you have a part to play. You are surrounded by preachers, song leaders, organizers, prophets, and intercessors, but they are not meant to be the professional team doing all the work. God's given them to you to equip you to do the real stuff of living as salt and light pressed into the city around us to prevent decay and bring light in life. Gare would likely end with another reminder that a new term of alpha is just around the corner to reach out to Summer if you want to volunteer. And he might say, look out for Lizzie and the kids. I long to be with you. Oh, it's a real letter. I mean, that's not a real letter. That was pretend. But what we're reading in the book of Philippians is a real letter from Paul the pastor to young Christians in Philippi. And so there's a great invitation for all of us, no matter where we stand in our walk with God or faith, to enter in to see what it might speak to us. And like I said, my job is to set the stage. And if we look at the screen here at Philippians chapter one, verse one, this is how the letter begins. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's, this is the opening address. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. My outline, my roadmap for the next minutes together is very simple. I wanna look at the writer, I wanna look at Paul a little bit longer. I wanna look at the writer of the letter to the church in Philippi. I want us to reflect on the recipients of the letter to the church in Philippi. How did this church come to be? Like, where did this come from? What's its origin story? And learn a little bit about the city of Philippi as a Roman colony. And then lastly, I want to give a primer on the reason Paul would write this letter. The writer, the recipient, the reason, three R sounds. How does that feel? Good? Let's do it. The writer. Paul's the writer, but he's not totally alone, as you would have seen in the text. He co-signs with his dear friend Timothy, so it appears that Timothy was with him in the time of writing in prison. And Paul writes this letter while in prison in Rome. Why is Paul in prison? Why is Paul in prison? Paul's in prison for proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And because in the Roman world, the idea that Caesar is the name to be worshipped and Caesar is Lord, this is a deeply threatening claim. And, Jesus, and Paul's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And this threatens the religious establishment and the political establishment profoundly. And so Paul 
is this church planter, preacher, starting gospel communities all over the Roman Empire. And this is super fascinating because just years earlier, Paul isn't a pastor Christian church planter. He's a persecutor of Christians. Like in the book of Acts, which gives us a historical account of the early church, Paul is recorded as complicit in the stoning of Stephen. Like Paul is this zealous religious leader who's threatened by this fledgling Christian movement and is trying to snuff it out. Like for example, in Acts chapter seven and eight, it records the account of how Stephen, who was a deacon, like a servant, like a worker in the church, responsible for making sure that there was provisions and food and care for widows. But he was dragged in by the authorities and questioned because he boldly proclaimed that Jesus is Lord and didn't bow to the authorities. They gathered stones and they publicly stoned Stephen to death. And at the very beginning of Acts chapter eight, it just says in a little note, and Paul was there approving it all. So Paul in Acts chapter seven and eight is complicit in seeing Stephen stoned and the Christian movement snuffed out. But then in Acts chapter nine, we read the account of how God profoundly revealed himself to Paul. And Paul had this revelation, eyes open, that Jesus is God. And his name is the name above all names. And this revelation is so profound for Paul that he goes from somebody persecuting Christians to proclaiming the gospel. He goes from trying to shut down the Christian movement to being one of the greatest champions and ambassadors of the Christian movement in the first century. And it makes me wonder, like this, when I think about Paul, like it does something to my imagination about how the kingdom of God can grow. Like what if, like I don't know if you are praying, but like I'm praying right now that God would bring renewal in our time to the church in Canada and America. Anyone else? God, would you bring renewal in our time? Would you raise up men and women of faith that would boldly stand on your truth and champion the cause of the gospel? And it makes me wonder as I pray, could it be possible that the greatest champions of the gospel in our generation don't even know Jesus yet? Like Paul. Because when we think about Paul like an antagonist to the gospel and now a champion of the gospel, it rewires our imagination of faith for what's possible. And it can rewire your imagination about how God could use you. Because if he can powerfully use someone like Paul, there's no one in this room that's disqualified than being profoundly used in your generation as a champion of the good news of the gospel. So the writer to the church in Philippi is Paul. That's the one writing this letter persecutor turned pastor, full of love and pastoral concern. He pens this letter from prison. And the recipients of this letter, the text says, are the holy people in Christ, that is the Christians gathered in Philippi. Now, as Paul writes, it's somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. But Paul first visits Philippi in 50 AD on his missionary journey. And it's hard for us to imagine today because even on your walk or drive here, you would have likely passed a number of churches. So all of us have grown up, especially if you grew up in North America, in a world filled with churches. So it's hard to imagine that there was a moment in history in Philippi, no churches, no Christians. And so when we say Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in 60 to 62 AD, the assumption is like, well, of course there's a church in Philippi, but that's 
how did there become a church there? Like, this is in the lifetime of Jesus. Like, Jesus has passed away, but there are people, sorry, living that could have been alive in the same lifetime as Jesus. So this is like early in the Christian movement. And so I wanna take us together to Acts chapter 16 and see Paul's first missionary journey to Philippi because then we see how this church began and I believe it's really important for us. It's really important for us to see how God established a church in Philippi in the first century that we might have renewed imagination about how God might build his church through people like you and I today here in this century. Acts chapter 16. So what we see at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, I'll do my best to summarize, but I recommend you can open there and follow along if you'd like or read later. But Acts chapter 16, Paul is at this stage with his team, like his companions, intentionally going from city to city, pioneering new gospel works, proclaiming the gospel, and then planting churches as people respond to the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and that his kingdom is at hand. And so as people respond, they plant churches, and Paul has a measure of strategy, intentionally going to strategic cities that could be outposts for the gospel in the Roman world. But at this stage of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, it it records that the Holy Spirit is holding Paul back from going where he had planned. So there's this sense that the Holy Spirit begins to intervene in Paul's plans and holds him back from going where he had planned. And then one evening, Paul has a vision, or one night Paul has a vision, and in this vision, he sees a man, and the man cries out, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is where Philippi is found. So Paul, not planning to go to Macedonia, has a vision. And in this vision, this man, like picture this, a man crying out saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And I think this dream, this vision that Paul had is a prophetic picture for you and I of the cry of the souls of those who don't know their maker who don't know the liberating love of Jesus, who don't know the good news of the kingdom of God's at hand and coming. And so Paul and his comrades after this vision discern that God is leading them to Macedonia. So they go. And then in Acts chapter 16, we see three different encounters with people in Philippi. First, a woman called Lydia. She's someone who sells purple cloth. So she's a measure of like wealth and success. And she, he meets Lydia and there's this very uneventful exchange. He meets Lydia. She's open to the things of God. She gives her life to Jesus. And then a church kind of begins in her home. Like she invites people into her home and it's the home of Lydia that becomes this kind of first gospel outpost in the region. And then as you continue to read, as Paul and his friends are walking, there's a girl in the town who is in double bondage. Like she's a slave to an owner, but she's also in spiritual slavery of sorts from demonic powers. And because of the dark demonic powers that are at work in her life, she can tell the future or has like insight, like a fortune teller. So her owners who are exploiting her, um, they profit off her as a fortune teller. And so there's this girl in slavery who's a slave to her owners, but also under dark demonic powers. She starts following Paul and his friends around and almost like in a mocking way calling out, these men are working for the most high God. They are laying out the road of salvation for you. 
And so she's crying this out, and it seems it's happening days after days until Paul turns and says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And she's fully set free from all of the torment of the dark powers. It's beautiful. It's beautiful freedom, authority, the name of Jesus. I love it. God's still doing that today, setting people free from dark powers and still call call on the people of God to go where people are held captive and to bring liberty and freedom. The instinct of Paul is the instinct of the people of God to bring freedom to the captives. But the business owners or the slave owners are furious. Why? Because they lost their means of profit. So they throw Paul in prison with his friends. Well, first they beat him. They strip him, beat him, and throw him in prison. And now Paul's in jail, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in jail with shackles on them. And in the middle of the night, they begin to sing. Somehow Paul, in the midst of like social rejection, physical pain, the sense that the very thing for which I came here to do is not working, is thrown in prison, is just worshiping God in the middle of the night. And as he's worshiping and singing hymns to God, all of a sudden there's an earthquake. And like the shackles break off and the prison doors open. And so the jailer panics. He panics and grabs a sword about to take his life because the jailer's aware that like, if all of these people leave, when my boss comes in the morning, I'm gonna find myself in a terrible situation. So he grabs the sword to take his life, but Paul goes, whoa, 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 stop. Stop. We're not going anywhere. And what I can, I seem to interpret as like an act of compassion, Paul stays. He says, don't, don't kill yourself. We're not going anywhere. And then listen what happens. Go with me. Acts chapter 16, verse 29. They'll have it on the screen. Listen to how the story plays out. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Is there anyone here in this room asking the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And it says, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Verse 33, at the hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And this is how the church in Philippi starts. Lydia, a girl trapped in slavery, set free, a prison guard and his family. God has a way of building his church with unlikely people in unlikely ways, and unlikely places. And my prayer is God do it again in our time. Draw people to yourself from every walk of life. And he is. This is what he's doing today. This might be your testimony. This might be your story. I've been so amazed in the three years of this church plant journey we're on in Vancouver meeting people and going, how did you find yourself here? And it's as if God is drawing people to himself 
And God is using people, just normal people like you or the one beside you, myself, imperfect, not totally sure, but willing to follow the spirit and have eyes to see where are their open hearts and opportunities to respond. And again, I just want the origin story of the church in Philippi, the humanity of this, the gospel insect. You know, the church in Philippi, the letter we're reading, it's not to like an abstract group of people. It's to people like Lydia, people like this young girl set free, people like the jailer and his family. And this diverse cross-section of the community of Philippi begin to gather. And 10 years later, Paul writes them a letter from prison. And that's what we're reading together today and this summer. It's a real gift. The writer, the recipients, lastly, the reason. What's the reason for the letter? First, Paul writes to say thank you. Thanks for the provisions. Thanks for the support. There's some practical reasons for it. He writes to say thank you. Second, he writes to address specific issues. One of my favorite parts of the letter to the church in Philippi is when Paul names like two people in conflict in the church, like by name, and then he's like, time to sort it out. Can you imagine like if a Gare writes and then Greg reads and just starts calling out three or four of you that are in a little bit of a bicker, like in front of everybody, that's what happens. It's like real stuff. And so there's like practical reasons to say thank you, to address specific issues. But I think primarily he's writing to help young Christians in the church of Philippi or in the city of Philippi work out what it means to be followers of Jesus in that place and in that time. And I think for everyone here, that's a question we wrestle with today, isn't it? What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus? Like, or what does it look like? How might I follow the way of Jesus today in this city? And these Christians in Philippi were asking the same questions. Like, it was difficult, it was countercultural for the young church in Philippi in the first century to follow the way of Jesus, because the way of Jesus was so counter to the way of Rome. And so one of the ways that Paul speaks to this, you see in chapter three, verse 20, he says and reminds them that, that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly, eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying like, to citizens of Rome in Philippi, he's saying your primary citizenship is in heaven. You are citizens of heaven. Now this is where it's helpful to just think a little bit about Philippi. So Philippi was a Roman colony. They weren't reluctantly Roman. Like Roman is con- Rome is conquering cities and regions. And many, many of these regions are reluctantly under the Roman power. But that's not true of Philippi. Philippi is proud to be Roman. They have all the rights and privileges of Rome. Philippi was filled with many military veterans, people who fought for Rome and were proud to be Roman citizens. They would have a sense of patriotic nationalism for what it meant to be part of the Roman Empire. And Philippi was often called by some historians, Little Rome. Even though it was far away, many week walking journey, people would call it Little Rome because if you were to visit Philippi, you would get a taste of the culture of Rome. And it's hard for us to overstate today the cultural force that Rome was in this time of history. And as it went with the culture of Rome, so it went with Philippi. Like track with me for a moment. The ideas and customs of Rome 
were the ideas and customs of Philippi. Like the beliefs and practices and values of Rome were the beliefs and customs and values of Philippi. And in the midst of the city of Philippi that celebrates Caesar as Lord, a people who proudly fly the Roman flag and who boldly embody the beliefs and practices of Roman culture. There's a small and growing community of people who are hearing and believing that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is at hand. And they are being caught up in a new culture, a gospel culture, gospel ethics, gospel practices, gospel values. And Paul is saying to proud citizens of Rome who have become followers of Jesus, though you live in Rome, your primary identity and citizenship is in Christ. And I believe he would say to followers of Jesus here, though you live in Los Angeles, your primary identity and citizenship is in heaven. See, what happens is when you become a follower of Jesus, it's not that you stop being American, or whatever piece of your identity, a father on Father's Day, that's a big part of my identity, I'm a dad, I'm Canadian, I'm a Ballard, that's my family, that comes with a big part of my identity, my practices, my rhythms are shaped by my heritage, my upbringing, my environment. And when you become a follower of Jesus, those things aren't erased. Please don't mishear me, they're not erased, they're a big part of your life. However, they no longer are your primary sense of identity. It's not where you take the final cue when it comes to values and practices and ethics and worldview. This isn't an abstract idea, citizenship in heaven. It's not meant to be sentimentalism. It's not meant to be sort of a cute idea. Because just as the values and ethics and customs of Rome found their way into Philippi, so the values and ethics and customs of heaven are meant to be worked out in the heart of followers of Jesus and in the community of believers. When people visited Philippi, they got a taste of Rome. And God's desire is that his people, the church, would be a taste of the kingdom of Jesus here on earth. Philippi was an outpost of the work of Rome the people of God are to be an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Paul's after. This is why he writes the letter, to teach them, to exhort them, to invite them to be citizens of heaven while living on earth. As we end today, if you're able, we'd love to invite you to stand. I just wanna draw our attention to one particular part of the scripture of the text in Philippians. Um, In the middle of the book of Philippians, there's a poem. Most of the letter is not written in poetry, but Paul, the author, breaks into poetry as if like the grammar and structures of normal prose can't quite contain what he's trying to communicate, so he breaks into poetry. And commentators say that this poem in chapter two is the literary center of the whole letter that every sort of section of the letter is interacting with and building off of and working with the themes in this poem at the center. And the poem at the center is 
a poem about Jesus. It's Paul's reflection on who Jesus is, the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the authority of Jesus. And so Paul in prison, mind fixed on Jesus, contemplating Jesus, at the center of his letter to the church in Philippi, where he exhorts them to be citizens of heaven, he builds it all around a deep worship act of Jesus. It's as if he's saying that the central practice of citizens of heaven is worship. Adoration, reflection, submission, living in response to who Jesus is. Attention on Jesus, eyes on Jesus. And so this is Paul's poem about Jesus and we'd like to invite you to reflect on who Jesus is, to see his person, his character, his sacrifice for you and I and his authority in a fresh way. It says this, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the center of the letter. This is what Paul wants the church in Philippi to see and know and fix their attention on. I think there's an invitation for you and I today. And as we gather here, in community, to sing, to fellowship, to sit under the word, to fix our eyes on Jesus. So I'd love to read it to you one more time. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would ignite this reality of who Jesus is in our hearts in a fresh way. And if you're comfortable, you don't have to, I just invite you to close your eyes and I'll just read it over you. And as we read it, Just receive each of these ideas as worship about who Jesus is. And so Holy Spirit, as we read again Paul's words to Christians in Philippi in the first century, I pray that these words would come alive by the power of your Holy Spirit and would bring revelation to our hearts that would cause us to live as citizens of heaven while we live on earth. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus, the King of kings, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
What kind of God would do this, you know? What kind of king would do this? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, in a fresh way, cause our hearts to worship you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living God, revealed in Jesus Christ, cause us to be your people, outposts of heaven here on earth. We thank you that your kingdom is at hand and it's coming. We worship you as living king, Lord of all. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.